All right, well, good morning, everybody. Can we uh, turn in our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 5? As we come to Joshua, chapter 5, in our study through this book, the children of Israel have entered into the promised land where God is now putting them through some final preparations before leading them into their first battle against the enemy, which would be the Battle of Jericho. But first he makes them set up camp in a place that they would call Gilgal. Now Gilgal is going to become very important to the people of God, to Israel, in the months and years to come. Because it's going to become their headquarters, from which they're going to launch their attacks against the enemy. But right now, it becomes a place where God has them, just for the purpose of teaching them some very important lessons before leading them into battle. You know, Alan Redpath, a tremendous man of God, in his commentary in the book of Joshua, he gives six lessons that God is uh, trying to teach us at Gilgal. Six things that we can glean from the passage that we need to learn to apply into our lives then if we're going to expect to be victorious over the enemies that we face. Now, i like to take uh, Alan Redpath's six main points, but I'll add my, my own commentary. And we looked at the first one last week. We said, first of all, Gilgal was a place of remembrance. And we looked at chapter 4, verses 19 to 24. And let me just quickly uh, review that. You remember how that, as God parted the Jordan River, as he caused the water uh, to stop, he put a wall, an invisible wall upstream. All the water then drained down and the children of Israel passed through on dry ground. After they passed through, Joshua had 12 men, you know, one guy from each of the 12 tribes, take 12 large rocks from the wilderness side of the Jordan, put them in the Jordan riverbed, and then Joshua took 12 other stones from the Jordan riverbed and put them on the promised land side of the Jordan. These became a memorial. In chapter 4, verse 24, we uh, read that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now look, as we mentioned last time, Today we as Christians don't set up stones from the Jordan River as a memorial to God's existence and power in the lives of his people. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the world is without a memorial that constantly testifies to the reality of God's existence and faithfulness either. You see, just as Joshua back then built a memorial out of real stones to be a testimony to the world back then of God's existence and power in the lives of his people, so too our Joshua, Jesus is building a memorial today not made of literal stones, but made of living stones. This memorial is called the church, which is the temple of the living God. Look, the greatest testimony that we as the people of God can give this world to the existence and the power of our, of our God listen, is a changed life, a changed life. You know, the world can argue with our theology, but they can't argue with the reality of a changed life. A changed life, I'm convinced, is the most powerful testimony to the world that God is real. You know, I think it was Harry Ironside, great man of God, who was confronted by an atheist one day. As Harry was out uh, having a meeting somewhere, preaching the word, this atheist stood up in the meeting and he challenged Ironside. He began to argue with him against the truthfulness of God's word while holding up the virtues of atheism as the only hope for the human race. Well, Ironside made the man a challenge. 
He said, next week, you come to our meeting with a hundred men whose lives have been radically transformed from drunkenness, sexual sin, and crime to lives of virtue and morality by the doctrines of atheism, and I will produce a hundred men whose lives have been radically transformed from sin to righteousness by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ironside, the man never showed up that following week. All right. So first of all, Gilgal was a place of remembrance. Secondly, Gilgal was a place of resurrection. And I told you to turn to chapter 5. We're still really in chapter 4, but we're going to be coming into chapter 5 in just a minute. But secondly, Gilgal was a place of resurrection. Look at chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Now, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. You see, Canaan, as we've said many times, represented the life of the Spirit, or what some have called the resurrection life. The Jordan River represented death, and they had to pass through the Jordan to get to the promised land. They couldn't go around it. They certainly couldn't be airlifted over it. They had to pass through it, signifying they had to pass through death to experience resurrection life. And folks, look, I think the lesson the Spirit of God is trying to teach us not only here but throughout the entire Bible is that you'll never live in resurrection power where you bring forth much fruit for the glory of God if you don't die first. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 24? He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. See, that's why Joshua took, I should say Joshua had 12 guys take stones from the wilderness and put them in the Jordan Riverbed. And then Joshua took stones from the Jordan Riverbed, 12, and put them up as a memorial in the, on the promised land side of the Jordan, because it was to signify, it was to signify that new life only comes from the death and burial of the old life. Of course, in our lives, this applies spiritually. We're not talking about literal death for us as Christians. We're talking about moving from the old life of the wilderness, you know, where you are um, walking in that carnality all the time, to experiencing now a new life, the resurrection life. It's a life that is um, free of really, it's, it's a life where you really turn your back on that old life of sin, self, uh, disobedience, murmuring, complaining, carnality, uh, all those things including your, your ambitions, your goals, your will. You, you give up all of that when you enter into the life of the Spirit because now Jesus becomes Lord of all. Look, there are Christians, of course, who are genuine Christians who have not made Jesus Christ Lord of all. They've received him as Savior, but they haven't yet really bowed the knee to his lordship in the sense that they've given him full control. And that's what the resurrection life is all about. That's what the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate here. It's a life where you abandon the self-life, the life of the flesh, and now you live a life of total consecration and separation unto God. And see, this is what crossing the Jordan into the promised land represented, that Israel now stood on resurrection ground. Look, when they came out of Egypt, that signified they were saved. Egypt is a type of the world. 
So when they came out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, they now signified that they were believers, spiritually speaking. But yet for the next 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness in circles, right? Until that older generation died out. And then their children entered into the promised land. Well, see, that signified a person who, once they get saved, uh, doesn't really turn control of their life totally over to God. They're still wanting to hold on to the you know, steering wheel of their life, you might say. And so they're trying to always steer God in their direction, where they want to go. And as such, there's lack of faith, there's carnality, there's selfishness, there's murmuring and complaining when God doesn't do things the way they would like. It's a carnal wilderness walk. But now, having passed through the Jordan, experienced the death of self, now the Holy Spirit was telling us that Israel now stood on resurrection ground. And look, and we have said this before, God doesn't want any of his children stuck between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And that's exactly what we're talking about. There are many people who have experienced Good Friday. In other words, they've applied the cross, they're saved. It's just that they've never entered into the life of the Spirit, that dynamic, powerful life that the resurrection life is all about. And so they're kind of stuck between two worlds, between Egypt and Canaan, and it's a really miserable place to be in. Because you've got too much of the Lord in you to be comfortable in the world any longer. And you've got too much of the world in you to be comfortable around really on fire, spirit-filled people of God. So you're kind of like stuck between two worlds. And this is the problem with those in the wilderness. They're stuck between two worlds because they want to hold on to the world with one arm and still hold on to the Lord with the other. And that's why Joshua, at the end of this book, challenges these people to, to make a decision. Choose today who you're going to serve. Stop trying to serve two masters. Stop trying to sit on the fence between two worlds. Who are you going to serve? If you want to serve the gods of the Canaanites, go for it. Or if you're going to serve the God of Israel, go for it with all your heart. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So Gilgal was, first of all, a place of remembrance Secondly, Gilgal was a place of resurrection. And thirdly, and we'll end with this one today, in chapter 5, we read how Gilgal was a place of renunciation. And here's where I want to pick it up in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of israel at that time the lord said to joshua make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of israel again the second time so joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of israel at the hill of the foreskins and this is the reason why joshua circumcised them all the people who came out of egypt who were males all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place. 
for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham to give to his descendants the land of Canaan and to make them a exceedingly great nation. Look, every covenant that God has made with man has an outward symbol or a sign that represented the covenant and demonstrated that it was now in effect, in force. Uh, the Noahic covenant. What was the sign of the Noahic covenant? That God would never again destroy the earth with a flood. The rainbow, right? The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Now, what you have to understand is that the Abrahamic covenant symbolized a special relationship between God and the people of Israel, just like a wedding ring is a symbol of, of the marriage covenant and signifies a special relationship between a man and a woman, two people having entered into a very special relationship based on, on mutual commitment and fidelity, and the ring that they give to one another that they wear on their fingers symbolizes that covenant, that commitment. Philip Keller, the author, said, and I quote, The rite of circumcision represented the unique recognition of man's part that he was no longer a free will agent to do as he pleased, but rather, quote unquote, a covenant person under direction by divine authority. And what Keller has in mind is Genesis chapter 17. So why don't you turn here? Let's look at this. You know, the Bible says our God is a covenant keeping God. It's very important that we understand these covenants. I want to show you the covenant that God made with Abraham. And just turn to Genesis 17. And let's pick it up in verse 7. Where God is speaking, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as a what? Everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. Verse 14. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, you have to understand that during the years of bondage in Egypt, the Jews failed to keep the rite of circumcision, which God made them obey before eating the first Passover meal, followed immediately by leading them out of Egypt. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, God said that no person, whether Jew or Gentile, was permitted to eat the Passover meal while uncircumcised. Now, when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and remember, he had just had them circumcised. They ate the Passover, then God led them out. And as he led them out of Egypt, he wanted to bring them into the promised land, of course. 
But they refused to enter in eventually. As you remember how they finally came to the border of the land, Kadesh Barnea. Moses sent in the 12 spies. Ten of them brought back an evil report. Only Joshua and Caleb brought back a good report. Uh, but the ten evil spies, they, um, they caused fear in the hearts of the people of God. So the people listened to these guys. Instead of trusting God to bring them in and give them victory over the giants in the land, because there's many giants in this land, the people listened to the ten evil spies and said, we can't go in there. These are big people, and they'll kill us. Let's go back to Egypt. It's, at least we know what we have there. And so God said, well, because you refuse to enter into my rest, my promised land, he sends that generation of adults to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation from 20 years old and above died out. These were the adult males that were circumcised in Egypt as God then led them out, these were the ones that died in the wilderness. But during those 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise their male children. This meant that they no longer considered themselves the covenant people of God. Maybe they were angry with God. You know, they're the ones that didn't want to enter in. So they exercised a lack of faith, and God punished them for their disobedience. But it seems as though they held it against God. And we see it primarily in the fact that they didn't circumcise their male children. This was a sign of the covenant. It was as if they were, if they were thumbing their nose at God and saying, we don't want your covenant. We don't want you as our God anymore. And so they turned their backs on God in the wilderness. But fortunately for all of us, not just for the Jews, but for those of us who are children of God today, because there are sometimes even Christians will turn their back on God when he doesn't come through for them in a given situation or things don't work out the way they want. I've seen many examples of Christians who have turned their back on God in their anger, frustration, their hurt. God has abandoned me. God has let me down. Turned their back on God and have forsaken him. Israel did that. But fortunately, God did not forsake them, nor does he forsake us when we do something stupid like that. Because what did God say in chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 7, and I think verse 8? How long was this covenant supposed to be in force? As long as they were faithful? It was an everlasting covenant. In fact, I think 11 times in the Old Testament, God says that the covenant that he made with Israel was an everlasting covenant, which means it wasn't dependent on their faithfulness. Just like the new covenant is also called an everlasting covenant. It doesn't depend on our faithfulness. It doesn't depend on how well we walk with God on any given day or how well we perform in our relationship with God, how, how long we read our Bibles every day or how many people we witness, witness to or whatever it might be. Our relationship with God is based on what Jesus did. He was the true and faithful servant. And Jesus' blood, when applied to our lives, causes us to enter into an everlasting, unilateral, unconditional covenant with the Lord. So Israel turned their back on God, but God hadn't turned his back on them. And so the first thing God had Joshua do after entering into the promised land was to circumcise the men of Israel. It says in verse 2, the second time. Now you read that, you might be stumbled. What do you mean? He was going to make these people, these men, go through circumcision again? How does that work? No? Okay. It didn't mean that one generation was going to be circumcised for the second time but that God was now commanding the circumcision of a new generation, which was only the second time 
the people of God had kept the rite of circumcision for the last 40 years. See, by commanding the people to observe the rite of circumcision, God was thus renewing his covenant with this new generation. This, in effect, was the sign that they were now renouncing the old life and really recommitting themselves back to God as his covenant people, which was going to be necessary and important for two reasons. First of all, they couldn't eat the Passover if they were not circumcised, right? They had been circumcised in the wilderness. So now Joshua is told by God, circumcise all the men before they could eat my Passover. That's why they had to be circumcised, number one. But number two, and most importantly, they had to be circumcised if they were going to be able to go in and possess the promised land because God only gave the land, in, the land of Canaan to his covenant people. So if you weren't circumcised, you weren't a part of God's covenant. It was a blood covenant. Now, circumcision, like every other outward ordinance that God has given, any, any outward ordinance or ritual, they really only represented something spiritual. This is what circumcision was all about. It was an outward ritual that represented a very important spiritual reality. In fact, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me show you something. See, don't get caught up on the outward ritual. Don't get caught up on any of those outward things that God has commanded his people to do because these rites, like circumcision, again, were nothing more than an outward symbol that represented something real that was going on spiritually. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, here's what God said to the people. He said, Therefore, circumcise the foreskins of your what? Heart. And be stiff-necked no longer. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, we read, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. You see, circumcision, from a spiritual standpoint, represented, again, a spiritual reality. What was that? Well, these were now God's people. How were they God's people? Through circumcision, or were they God's people through faith? They were God's people through faith. And so the rite of circumcision really was something God was trying to communicate that was supposed to be going on in the heart. Where they're going to be cutting away all that self-willed life, that life of sin, uncleanness, and so on, to start living a life of purity and holiness and consecration. Circumcision really carried the same principle for God's people in the Old Testament that water baptism really signifies for God's people in the New Covenant. In fact, Paul tells us in Colossians 2, once you turn there once. Now, keep in mind that as they, by faith, became the people of God and God had them go through the, the ritual of circumcision to be a symbol of that reality, remember that we, as the people of God, have put our faith in Christ. We have become God's people. We have been set apart. That's what the word church means, by the way. It comes from two Greek words, ek and kaleo. Ek means out of, kaleo means to call. Ekklesia, the word for church in the New Testament, means a call-out assembly. We've been called out of the world, separated for God. We are a holy people now, which means we are to be dedicated to God. No longer live for ourselves, for our flesh, for our desires. We're to live for Him now, right? This happened 
the moment, or this began to happen, the moment you gave your heart to Christ. It happened invisibly and spiritually. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2, starting in verse 11. He said, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, he is applying something that God intended for Israel. He's applying it to the church here. He is saying the Jews were those who underwent circumcision literally with human hands. But we have been circumcised in the heart without hand. How did that happen? Well, it's through faith. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When Jesus came into our heart through his Holy Spirit, he began to cut away the old self life of uncleanness and sin and so on. This happened spiritually. In fact, sanctification is an ongoing process, right? So once we get saved, we are saved fully. You can't be partially saved or working towards salvation. You're either saved or you're not saved. But at the moment you are saved, you enter into a lifelong process of sanctification, which is God working in your heart through His Holy Spirit to continue to cut away from your heart the old self-life. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has now made alive with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so here's the idea. Paul is right here in these verses. He is saying that circumcision and water baptism really served the same purpose. They were both symbols of an inward reality. And the reality was, and I'll just keep it to the church right now, when we gave our heart to Christ, Jesus came inside. He circumcised our heart spiritually. He began to cut away the old life, right? Now we take somebody down to the river or wherever we baptize people. We dip them into water to signify now, look, that old life is dead and buried. When they come up out of the water, they're living now a new life, a resurrection life. Remember now, Israel passing from the wilderness into the promised land, they were on resurrection ground. They had to pass through the Jordan River, right? It symbolized death. And the idea was that as Christians, once we get saved, we are then baptized in water, which signifies what's going on in our hearts. How do we know if something real has happened? Because you know what? We can dip people in water all day long who make a superficial profession of faith. Oh, yeah, Christian, sure. I want to be a Christian. But they don't know what it means to repent. They're not really wanting to live a new life, a, a Christ-centered life, and so on. How do we know if a person really has received Christ into their heart? Well, John tells us in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 5, verses 3 to 5, they start living a new life, right? Isn't that what it's all about? When Christ comes in, he begins to cut away the self-life, that we live a new life, life in the Spirit. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him. <laughs> this is how we know we're really saved, that we really have opened our hearts to Christ. If we keep his commandments. Now notice what John is not saying. He is not saying we are saved if we keep his commandments. He is saying we know that we're saved if we keep his commandments, right? He who says, I know him, or in other words, I'm a Christian, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. 
By this we know that we are in him, or in other words, we are the covenant people of God under the new covenant. See, this is important that we understand that any outward ritual means nothing to God if it isn't accompanied with a genuine inward spiritual reality. Listen to what one author said, because he gets at the heart of what we're talking about. He said, but over the years, the Jews came to trust in the external mark of circumcision and not in the God of the covenant who wanted to make them a holy people. They thought that as long as they were God's covenant people, they could live just as they pleased. Moses warned them about this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, and so did the prophets like Jeremiah in chapter 4, verse 4. When John the Baptist called them to repent, the Jewish spiritual leaders said, We have Abraham as our father. They were not unlike some people today who feel sure that they're saved and are going to heaven because they're baptized, confirmed, and participate regularly in communion. As good as these religious rites can be, they must never become substitutes for genuine faith in Jesus Christ, end quote. See, this is the problem with, well, it's not God's problem. It's not like God gave us a problem when he gave the Jews the right of circumcision and the church the right of baptism. It's just that we are prone to put all the emphasis on the externals and forget what the reality is supposed to, to be. See, the Jews came to believe that it didn't matter how they lived. It didn't even matter if they believed in God. As long as they were descendants of Abraham and were circumcised in the physical foreskin of their flesh, they thought, I'm in. I'm saved by circumcision. Well, Paul tells us, I think it was Romans chapter 4, that circumcision didn't even save Abraham. He believed in God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I forgot how long it was, 17 years before he was actually circumcised? See, the outward ritual is meaningless if it doesn't have with it the inward reality. Give you another example. Well, let's just say water baptism, too. There are a lot of Christians who think, or a lot of people who think, because they were baptized when they were infants, and they go to church, maybe, or they have been confirmed, or they go to Mass every week, or church every week, where they engage in communion. Hey, that's all I need. I'm right with God. Putting all the emphasis on the outward ritual and neglecting completely the reality. Give an example. When a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage, which is that? what is that covenant? It's where they both promise each other they're going to be committed to one another and faithful to one another for the rest of their lives, right? And then as a symbol of that commitment, we place on each other's finger a ring. That ring becomes a symbol of that commitment. But that ring doesn't mean anything if it sits on the finger of an, adult, of an adulterer or an adulteress because the ring means nothing if it's not accompanied with the genuine commitment that it's supposed to represent. Same thing is true with the Jews in the Old Testament, Christians in the New Testament. It was easy for the Jews to be circumcised or people to be dipped in water today. But if in their hearts something real was not going on, it was worthless. And yet here they are putting all their faith in the ritual and neglecting the reality. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of people who are putting all their faith in their fact that they were water baptized or made their confirmation and they uh, take communion every week a lot of these people are going to be horrified on the day of judgment when they stand before Jesus Christ and they're absolutely shocked that they're not going to heaven and they say Lord Lord didn't we do many good things in your name didn't we cast out demons and so on he's going to say I never knew you 
you went to church, you entered into rituals, but there was no reality in your heart. You didn't love me. You had not given me your, your life. I wasn't your Lord. You did your own thing. This is what we're learning right here. And that's why from a spiritual standpoint, they had to be circumcised, the Jews, upon entering into the promised land because the promised land, again, represented the life of the Spirit. And to live a Spirit-filled life, now we're talking about in relation to us, if we're going to enter into the life of the Spirit, we have to undergo circumcision. No, not the literal kind, but as Paul said, a circumcision made without hands. We have to let the Lord convict us. See, we have to be willing, though, to let the Lord convict us. How does the Lord convict us of our wrongdoing? As we read the Bible, right? We read God's Word and we realize what God has said. And as we read that we, and we compare it to what, how we're living, we go, uh-oh, uh, I'm not doing what God told me I'm supposed to be doing. What does that do? If your heart is right, it brings conviction, right? Conviction of wrongdoing. I'm guilty. Well, what should that do? It should bring me to a place of confession and repentance and then obedience so I get my life right with God. That's the process of spiritual circumcision. We need to allow the Lord to, to do that in our lives if we're going to really walk in the Spirit every day. And conversely, that's why they were not circumcised in the wilderness. I'm speaking of Israel, of course. is because the wilderness represented the carnal or the fleshly life. And so they were uncircumcised in body and in heart in the wilderness. And as a result, they wandered aimlessly in the desert where they were the, re the reproach and the laughing stock of Egypt. Now hang on to that, all right? Because this is what Gilgal is all about, guys, all right? You see, what happened was when God brought them out of Egypt, remember now, he brought them out with a mighty outstretched arm, right? Ten miracles, right? Ten plagues upon the Egyptians. Where did Israel live in the land of Egypt? Anybody remember? Goshen. Goshen was very fertile land because the Israelis had many flocks and herds and so on, and the Egyptians abhorred shepherds. They abhorred working with animals like that. They, it was beneath them. So they gave Israel the choicest land of Egypt because it was good for pasture. So in the Egyptians' mind, their God led them out of this incredibly fertile area, the Nile Delta, to do what with them? Give them a better land than Egypt? No, they wound up in the wilderness, right? Where they wandered around for 40 years, dying out everywhere they went. You don't think the Egyptians were getting wind of this? You don't think the Egyptians were keeping tabs on what was going on? What had become of these people? Oh, they were keeping a close eye on them. And here's what the, the worldly mind, the Egyptian mind thought. This is what your God is doing? He took you from the most fertile place on earth to bring you into this desert wilderness to let you wander around in circles until you all died out? They became a laughing stock and a reproach in Egypt. For all those 40 years. And when God brought them into the promised land, he immediately had Joshua circumcise the men, not only to renew the covenant with this new generation, but to symbolize that this was the beginning of a, of a new life. They were now renouncing the old life of their fathers, their parents, and recommitting themselves to God to start living a new life of holiness and commitment. And after Joshua circumcised them, now listen, the place where they were encamped 
was called Gilgal. After Joshua circumcised the men, they named the place where they were encamped Gilgal, which means rolling. Because it says in Joshua 5, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place shall be called Gilgal to this day. God says, I I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Or in other words, the reproach of the wilderness which the Egyptians mocked Israel over, God had rolled away from their lives. What is the spiritual lesson here? Well, here's what I take from it. You might take something different. Okay, here's what I get out of this. Again, Egypt, the type of the world, Egyptians mocking the people of God as they wandered aimlessly in the wilderness for all those years. To me, there is nothing more contemptible and reproachable in the eyes of the world than a person who claims to be a Christian and loves God, but still tries to live like those in the world. You know, there are a lot of Christians who do this. I don't know what it is. I think that they're afraid of... um, looking too radical, coming across like a religious nut job, you know, a Bible thumper. You know, they still want people to like them and accept them. you you got to die to that when you walk in the Spirit, right? you got to die to all of that. Because as long as you want people to like you and respect you and admire you, you're going to want to do things to earn their admiration. And if they're worldly, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to start hanging out with them in places that they go. You're going to start drinking. How many Christians wanted to try to be one of the guys that they work with because, you know, they have to work with these guys and, you know, it's, it's hard to, to, to be ostracized from a group of people you work with every day. So what do they do? They try to fit in, right? How do they do that? Well, they go out to the bar afterwards. I'm just going to have one beer. Just to show the guys I'm, I'm still a regular guy. I can love the Lord and still be one of the guys. And what do you think that those unbelievers say behind that person's back who's trying to be like them yet talks about the Lord and being a Christian now? They mock them, right? They mock them. I can't tell you how sad it is to see people who are trying to still fit into the world, who are haven't yet made the transition completely from Egypt into Canaan. They're still in the wilderness, trying to have both worlds, world with one hand and God with the other. And so because they still want to have their old friends and, you know, make people think that they're still the same old person, I'm just I just love the Lord now. I'm just, you know, I'm not weird. Well, it's been my experience. Whenever you try to be a friend of the world, first of all, the Bible says you're no longer a friend of who? Of God. But I guarantee you this, when you're there with the guys and you're, you know, maybe just one beer, and you're thinking, boy, I'm really showing them, I'm really fitting in. When you walk away, they're going to be mocking you, ridiculing you, because there's nothing more contemptible and reproachable in the eyes of the world than somebody who claims to love God and still is trying to live the old life. These kind of People will always be objects of ridicule in the eyes of the world. So the lesson is stop trying to live between two worlds. Stop trying to have the world and the Lord. You've got to choose who you're going to serve. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Joshua said you've got to serve, choose if you're going to serve the Lord or the world, but you've got to make a choice. And so I, the lesson here is that, look, it's either I am going to be a person who is playing games with God who, for some strange reason, wants to be a child of God and yet still wants to have contact with the world. And, you know, there are people like this, and and I don't really understand fully uh, the mindset. I'll give you one example. Jehoshaphat, 
Now, Jehoshaphat was kind of an enigma as a king. He was a good king, all right? He was a king of Judah. He was a good king, a godly man. But for some strange reason, he liked to hang around with Ahab, the king of Israel, who was one of the most wicked characters in Israel's history as a king. Why a godly man wanted to constantly have fellowship with an ungodly, worldly king like Ahab, I don't know. But it happens. I can't explain it. It's kind of what we're talking about. And I think you have to decide, look, whose approval do I, do I want? Do I want the world's approval? Who cares what the world thinks? Or do I want God's approval? He's all that, the only one that matters. And I think we have to come to that place in our own hearts where we say, Lord, I'm tired of fooling around. I'm tired of, of trying to be, I'm, try, I'm tired of trying to live between Egypt and Canaan. I want to make a choice now. And I know that if you're going to take me from where I am spiritually in this wilderness, I've been kind of wandering around aimlessly in for years as a Christian, and take me into the new life of the Spirit where I really walk in power and victory, then I realize this, I'm going to have to let you take, get into my heart here. I know you live there, but I'm, I'm going to have to open my heart up to you to do whatever you want to convict me of those areas that are not pleasing to you so that I get serious about them. And I make a decision to let you begin to clean some house, the house where you now live, which is my heart. And until you do that, you're never going to experience your own personal Gilgal where the Lord will, will roll away the reproach of the world from your life because now you're a spirit-filled believer. I'm not saying the world's going to applaud you. I'm just saying the world is going to know you're not a hypocrite. So look, let's close. If you want to stop wandering the spiritual in a spiritual wilderness of compromise and carnality, you must do, you must do two things, just quickly. First of all, you've got to enter into the life of the Spirit by faith. And reckon the old life of the flesh dead. We talked about this earlier in this study, so I'm not going to go back and, and uh, review the whole thing. It's just entering into the life of the Spirit, though. You're already saved. I'm talking about now entering into a new life of victory and power and blessing and fruitfulness. Uh, that has to be done by faith. How did you get saved by faith? How do you walk in the Spirit by faith? And part of that means you reckon, which is a word that means a faith word, you reckon the old life dead. It no longer has authority over you anymore. You can't say, well, I can't help myself. Yes, you can. We make excuses and we give the devil a place in our lives when we tell ourselves, I can't be free of this thing. Or I can't be free of, the, of, of this habit or whatever it might be. I'm bound to these things. And God says, you are not bound. I have freed you through the blood of my son. You have to apply that blood, that victory by faith, though. And secondly, you must renounce the old life of selfishness and disobedience and recommit your life to God brand new, just like they did. When they entered into the promised land and they were circumcised by Joshua, it signified a renewing of the covenant that God made with Abraham. There are times when we walk away from God that we have to recommit our lives back to him. I want you to notice one thing. After God brought them all through the Jordan. Remember, he had stopped it upstream. And they all crossed. Now, remember, they couldn't get into the promised land, right? Unless God worked a miracle. Because the Jordan, at this time of year, as we have said, was several hundred yards wide, maybe a mile wide. It was flood stage, spring of the year. They could not get through the Jordan River unless God worked a miracle, right? 
So they had to enter into the promised land through a miracle, just like we entered into Christ through a miracle of faith. We were born again then. But when they all got over into the promised land, what did God do? He removed his hand from the Jordan River, and the Jordan River flowed again through the Jordan Valley, sealing them in the promised land. They couldn't leave now. They were sealed, just like we were sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. I believe with all my heart, once a person gives their heart to Jesus, truly now, not playing games, not a counterfeit Christian, a real genuine Christian who has given their heart to Christ, they are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. In other words, they can't get out of Christ. <gasps> what do you mean? I can't get out of I can't. I can't get out of Christ if I want to. If you're really saved, do you want to? I mean, come on. If you're really saved, and you know in Christ is eternal life, outside of Christ is eternal destruction, are you going to be trying to get out of Christ if you really know him? No, come on. So once I'm in Christ, I'm sealed there. That's salvation. I can never leave that. I can never lose that. But the life of the Spirit, the resurrection life, yeah, I can leave that. I can walk back into carnality. I can live again in selfishness. See, the sanctified life is not something that you're sealed in. You can, I mean, there's many Christians who have walked with the Lord with all their heart for years. And then something has happened. Maybe God let them down. Maybe a loved one died. Maybe something happened and they turned their back on God. And yeah, they've walked away from him. But he hasn't walked away from them. And if you talk to them, they'll tell you. And, and they eventually come back. But if you talk to them, and I, we've got a young guy He's not that young anymore, but he was a young guy when he first started coming to our church 25 years ago. And for a long time, he walked away from God. And then he came back. And he told me, he said, look, every day, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Every day. You can walk away from the Lord, but he'll never walk away from you. But even having said that, we don't want to walk away from him. We should walk in the Spirit every day. We're admonished to do that. But let me just say this. When you do backslide, you need to do what Jesus admonished the church of Ephesus to do, who were still going through the motions. Revelation chapter 2, remember? They were still going through the motions, but they had really lost the emotion and their relationship with the Lord. Their walk had become mechanical. They were still going to church. They were still serving the Lord, no doubt, in the Scriptures and so on. But their heart had wandered from the Lord. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works. That is always the formula for restoring our relationship with the Lord. Once we walk away, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it meant when you first got saved and what that was all about. Repent and then do your first works. Get back to where you once were. Get back to where you once were with God, just like Israel. Started off with Abraham. Then all those years in the wilderness, they walked away. God brought them back. They recommitted their lives, and God moved forward with them once again. I love that because some Christians walk a million miles away from God, and yet when they realize that they need to get right with him and they turn around, they realize he's standing right there. He's never left them. And he says, all right, you've taken a pretty long detour. Let's get back on the right road now. Let's start walking together again. Because I want to use you still. I want to bless your life. I want you to know what it's like to really bear fruit for my glory.